Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Ludwig Wittgenstein, a 20th century philosopher and language revolutionary, said, The limits of my language means the limits of my world. Language connects us, binds us, but also differentiates us from others. It can define our cultural values, express our ethics, and establish boundaries of behavior. Explore the science of language with Dr. Margaret Grant, Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. So listen in as this lesson in language leaves us at a loss for words. I have to say that I was pretty excited to dive into this topic today. A bit surprising because I only speak English fluently and sometimes Harris, even English can be a bit of a challenge no some days. Kidding, right? <laughs> My parents were only fluent in English as well. And although I studied French in school, I must hear in Canada, you know what they say. If you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. There is very little opportunity to speak French where we live. Languages tend to get very rusty as well if you don't speak them regularly. Mm-hmm. Regardless, I love language and am fascinated by how we communicate. Yeah, I also love language. In fact, one of my top life to-dos is to become fluent in another language. But it isn't all about the spoken word, is it, Walker? No, it isn't. There's also nonverbal or body language and, of course, the written word. Language is important because it connects us. Right. We all communicate, humans, animals, and even trees, which I think we're going to have to cover at some point in an episode all on its own. Oh, I can't wait. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to admit, I didn't know that there was a science dedicated to the study of languages. Yep. It is called psycholinguistics. Did you know this? Well, really only after researching this episode. Psycholinguistics studies how we as humans use language, how we receive, understand, and produce language. The study comprises two disciplines, psychology and linguistics. Psychology studies human thoughts, emotions, and behavior, and linguistics, language, and its manifestations. Well, that sounds like it's very different from the study of actual languages themselves. Yes, this makes me think about how people are so different and how they communicate. I've always found it interesting that some people talk so much Mm. and others virtually nothing at all. I know, right? Apparently, some people talk excessively because they're simply nervous or insecure. Silence might make them a little uncomfortable. But there can also be other reasons, too, for speaking excessively. Some conditions contribute to this phenomenon, such as ADHD, Asperger's, or autism. But in F. Diane Barth's article in Psychology Today, entitled Five Steps for Dealing with People Who Talk Too Much, apparently some people talk too much because they are egotistical and like hearing the sound of their own voice walker. Ah, same behavior, but for very different reasons. Yeah, and I can think of a few examples of these (laughs) chatty Cathy's in my life. Me too. So how does she suggest you deal with people who drone on? Mm. Well, if the person has a psychological issue, then patience is recommended. I would think that this approach would be best too for those who are nervous and insecure. Barth suggests that we figure out what the person is really trying to get at and then attempt to restate it in our own words. Maybe that helps get to the crux of the matter. But if the problem persists, it's acceptable to hold one's own boundaries and exit the conversation. So if you were talking to someone and that person exited the conversation, as you say, 
I would take it as a pretty clear sign that something went sideways. I know, right? But some people really don't get that cue and they just find a new target and talk their ear off. Well, I think we make assumptions about other people based on how much they talk, don't we? Mm -hmm. If you talk too much, people might find you annoying. They might think that you're full of yourself. But if you talk too little, you could be perceived as being shy, not having anything to say, or even that you're hiding something. Right. People of few words might be regarded as too much work to have a conversation with even. Right. The introvert, which is definitely not us, Walker. (laughs) I actually used to be shy until I was an older teen. I never had a lot of friends, just a very small circle. I grew more comfortable, though, in my own skin as I got older. I would imagine this happens a lot to people. Well, believe it or not, Walker, I was also shy as a youngster. What? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I am getting a look of major disbelief across the uh, desk here. Yeah, no, I used to hide behind my mom until about grade school, but I'm not sure what happened there. Some people, though, stay introverted for life. They just don't feel the need or desire for small talk. Introverts, as you say, have a small social circle, which suits them just fine. Small, but quality. And they aren't really necessarily shy. I loved Debauchery's Bhattacharjee's article entitled Seven Things People Assume About Me Because I Don't Talk Much. She says that shy people avoid small talk because of an innate fear that they'll be judged negatively. But introverts, on the other hand, abstain from it because they find it draining. Introverts can also be perceived as snobby, depressed, or that they lead a socially empty and boring life. Miss Bhattachaji even had an extrovert recommend that she read How to Win Friends and Influence People. How insulting. Oh, no. I know. Introverts are the opposite of boring. They just don't feel the need to share everything on their mind with everyone. I imagine the introvert's slogan would be less is more. Exactly. Or maybe when it comes to communicating, possibly quality versus quantity. So on the topic of quantity, I would think that the sheer number of languages one is fluent in would be a real advantage in today's world. Most definitely. I truly admire those individuals who have mastered multiple languages. Mm -hmm. Me too. I remember when I was working towards my doctorate, my supervisor would effortlessly slip back and forth between speaking English, French, German, and Greek, depending on whether he was speaking with an Austrian colleague or a French or Greek grad student. It was really impressive. That is very impressive. I wish I had that aptitude for language. Yes, but it's a bit uncomfortable when people are speaking different languages. It's quite exclusionary. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have become fluent in French, but learning languages does not come easy to me, though. I think that it truly does come more easily for some than others. For example, in my family, I'm always in the hot seat when it comes to communicating in other countries in the native tongue. I have some very proud moments, which I could share with you, Walker, but I'm still (laughs) far from fluent in another language. But we all get a kick out of those translations that are kind of off the mark, like on restaurant menus or other tourist paraphernalia. Right, like this one. A sign posted outside a French pool listed the rules and regulations. One was that anyone obeying the swimming pool regulations may be required to leave. Oh, well, that kind of defeats the purpose of promoting good behavior. (laughs) So true. Or this oddball one, a Filipino sign was advertising roast chicken, but the English translation read, chicken of your mother. Whoa, okay. That's a bit of a mind boggler. I like one translation that read, when on boat, please wear airbags. Airbags. I know, but we get the meaning, right, of all of these, don't we? We are honored to speak today with Dr. Margaret Grant, Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science, co-author of several research studies, 
at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Welcome, Dr. Grant. Thanks for having me. Dr. Grant, you have basically written the book on essential linguistics, as there is a textbook you've co-authored of that name. Can you give us a layperson's explanation of the study of linguistics? Well, in short, linguistics is the scientific study of language. So while the particular questions that linguists are interested in vary widely, so from example, from asking how we use parts of our bodies to produce language, to the underlying rules that govern possible words and sentences within and across languages, um, all the way to how language is used in particular communities. Now, I think what unifies the research across these different subfields is a name to describe and understand language and how it's used rather than to make claims about how people should use language. Right. So we're approaching it from a descriptive point of view rather than a prescriptive point of view. Well, that's really interesting. So can you give us an idea of what ignited your own personal interest in language that led you to pursue an academic career in linguistics? It's it's not a career that everybody chooses, that's for sure. That's true. And it's not a field that everyone has even heard of. So before going to university, I was, I would say, a dedicated student of French that was, you know, had the opportunity to go to French immersion in elementary and high school. And I was very interested in literary style and words and their etymologies. So I entered university thinking I might study literature. Right. But once I took my first linguistics class, I was really hooked. Um, I liked thinking analytically about language, which wasn't easy, but it was fascinating to me. And soon after, I also got interested in cognitive psychology and neurolinguistics. And I even worked as a research assistant in a lab that studied people who have acquired language disorders or aphasia. And that was really inspiring to me. So ultimately, I kind of put those pieces of my education together and applied to graduate schools. And there I specialized in psycholinguistics, which is the study of how our minds and brains comprehend and produce language. So really, I think I admired my professors and their work and ultimately decided to follow in their footsteps. Yeah, inspired by your mentors. Yes, absolutely. And that's the way it should be, right? <laughs> um, so there are many endangered languages in the world today, such as many of the indigenous languages here in North America. How can linguistics serve to protect these languages that may soon be lost? Well, I'll start by saying that language reclamation and revitalization aren't my main areas of work, okay. but I have learned a lot from my colleagues and others in this field that I've had the chance to meet. So I'll start by saying that there is a complicated history between the field of linguistics and Indigenous communities. So in the past, linguists and other scholars have really been guilty of treating a language simply as data that can contribute to their own work and extracting those data about a language without necessarily involving people from that community or thinking about how to benefit that community. So the relationship has been contentious in the past. Today, I think many linguists are involved in revitalization efforts in a positive way including linguists who come from those communities themselves. Linguists are helping with things like language documentation, developing educational materials for Indigenous languages, 
and even advising on government policies toward Indigenous languages, among other aims. So some of my colleagues here at Simon Fraser University are involved in the Indigenous Language Program, which involves doing linguistics and also developing teaching materials, teaching language teachers out in Indigenous communities. That is incredibly important work, and it's really uh, reassuring to hear that there's a much more positive contribution being made now by academia to fulfilling the future of these languages and, and benefiting the community, as you say. In our research, we uncovered the almost magical abilities that some people have to acquire fluency in new and multiple languages. Does linguistics offer an explanation or perhaps a framework for this phenomenon? So that's a very interesting question. There's often a misconception that linguists themselves are what we call polyglots or speakers of multiple yes. languages, which isn't necessarily the case. So you can become a linguist even if you don't speak a second language fluently. Now, many linguists have an interest in learning languages as well. So I think that would probably be quite rare. But being able to speak many languages is something kind of different from studying language scientifically. So I'll say that first of all. But whether linguistics can provide some explanation for this phenomenon, I think the answer would be maybe. Mm. What, from what I've read, there are specialists in language teaching who are interested in whether some people have a special cognitive aptitude for learning languages. Right. As you might imagine, learning a language requires excellent memory, attention, all of the skills that help learning in general. Um, but it seems like there are some people who may not be exceptional in those categories who nonetheless have a great ability to learn many languages. And I think the jury is still out on why exactly that is. Are either of you in that category? Uh, no, and I would love to be in that category. I aspire to be fluent in multiple languages and I do work on it regularly, but still, I haven't achieved it. How about you? No, I'm not a polyglot. I speak English, French, some German, and I've been trying to learn a little bit of Korean recently. Oh, um, but I'm a rank beginner. Yeah, well, I've tried my hand at Mandarin, which I intend to continue to pursue, but it is much more difficult than some of the, the Latin languages. Any language that's very different from your own or your, your first language is going to be harder to learn, I think. Absolutely. But I'm still impressed with your three languages. I think that is still still a little notch in your belt. I always think it's a good idea, especially for people who have grown up speaking English, mm -hmm. to try to live and work in a second language. Yes. And it gives you so much more of an appreciation for what others are doing all the time who have English as an additional language. Exactly. I think about that easy. all the time. People coming to Canada specifically and trying to adapt not only to just the culture, but to adapt to the language and how it's spoken here, which has its own idiosyncrasies. And English itself is such a challenging language. So I'm going to change tactics a little bit here. I absolutely love that movie, Arrival. I'm sure you saw it that came out in 2016 that features a linguist, such as yourself, who 
deciphers a completely alien language, and I mean that literally, an alien language, in order to communicate with a new life form. And I wouldn't imagine there are too many undiscovered languages on this earth today, but do you ever encounter anything in your work that appears entirely novel, something you've never seen before? Well, first of all, I love that movie too. And I often play a clip and also interviews with the linguists who are involved in the creation of that movie, Jessica Kuhn and Morgan Sondrager at McGill University. Right. Um, I often play clips for my students, but I have to keep in mind that while for me, 2016 seems like yesterday, it's not the case for some of my university students. That's right. They <laughs> were the babies. Like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we have to be mindful about using terms like discovered when we think about a language, because of course, even if we find a language that hasn't been described by a linguist as defined by a certain Western tradition, right? The speakers of that language know about it already. Um, so, of course, that's a very good point. Of course, in my job, I learn about new characteristics of languages that I've never heard about quite regularly in my research that I do, you know, when I'm about to teach a new topic, although maybe not a new, an entirely new language that hasn't been described academically. Uh, so that's one of the things I love about my job is that I'm always discovering new characteristics of languages, whether they're spoken languages or signed languages mm. that I can incorporate into my teaching. That's really interesting. So you actually look at signed languages as well as spoken languages. I didn't realize that that was a part of the field of linguistics. Yeah, so signed languages are languages. I would say signed languages are languages in all of the relevant senses that we right. use the word language. It's just that their modality of expression is visual rather right. than primarily auditory. So signed languages have words, they have sentence structure that is just as systematic and complex as any spoken language. It's just the modality of delivery that is different. That is different. So that is so interesting. If we want to be inclusive in teaching about language, then really we have to incorporate both. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I fully understand that. So let me pick your brain a little bit here. Clear and constructive communication appears to be suffering in today's world. I don't know if it's because of the modes of communication, like email, texting, and everybody using all those acronyms and whatnot. But how can the scientific study of language contribute to improved interpersonal communication, do you think, today? Well, it depends on, first, how we want to define clear. Right. So if we're thinking about things like avoiding ambiguity, where, mm -hmm. where the same string of words can mean more than one thing, mm -hmm. then definitely linguists can help with that, right? Because we can help people learn how what they just said can mean more than one thing. Maybe the sentence structure has two different possibilities. So for example, if I say the brother of the actor who was in the car left early, who was in the car? Well, it could be the brother or it could be the actor, right? There's an right. ambiguity in that sentence. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to be really clear, you might want to avoid that kind of sentence and structure your utterance differently. So that's something that linguists can definitely help with. But I have maybe mixed feelings about 
defining clear communication as something that adheres to those prescriptive standards and leaves out any inclusion of the author's authentic voice. So for example, we know that there are many different varieties of English and what we define as standard, we have to ask whose English is that? Yes. And is that the only one that we want to value? We have to be careful when we think about clarity and how we define that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what linguists can further do is help people to unpack the biases that we might have towards other people's use of language. And when we recognize and understand those biases, we can start to dismantle them and understand, for example, different varieties as simply different rather Mm -hmm. than making evaluative judgments about them. Right. I was going to say judgments. Yeah. It's, it's very important to check our perspective, our biases, and what lens we're looking uh, through when we are assessing language. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so your second point was about um, constructive communication. Mm -hmm. What I was thinking about in terms of helping people to be constructive is something that I've really just started to emphasize in my linguistics classes, which is understanding how language can do harm through, for example, derogatory uses of terms. And if we understand how language can do harm, then we can try to avoid those harms in the way we use language. Absolutely. That should be core curriculum from an early age is understanding how our words can really have a negative impact on others, on communities. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if we're mindful of that, it can help communication in general. Absolutely. Very, very important. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Dr. Grant. You have really shone a light on the critical importance of language and how we view other languages. You can discover more about the study of linguistics by having a look at Dr. Grant's textbook. Essentials of Linguistics, now in its second edition, or follow her on Twitter at at MGLinguist. Thank you so much, Dr. Grant. We really appreciate your time with us today. Oh, thank you. Well, that was fascinating, right, Walker? Walker, did you know that there are over 7,000 languages spoken around the world, but more than half of the people in the world speak just 23 of them? Wow, 7,000. I know. And most of those are dialects, but this fact will totally blow your mind. There are now more people around the world who speak English as a second language than there are people who claim English as their native language. And I've read that English and French are the only languages that are taught in every country. That's crazy. I heard that English is the most widely spoken language with 1.5 billion speakers. So that makes sense. Yep. But did you know that over half the world is also bilingual? Well, if you have to be fully fluent in two or more languages to be considered bilingual, that counts us both out, right, Harris? Technically, yes, but I'm getting close, Walker. Well, that's great. So what keeps us from becoming bilingual? Well, for some of us, it's likely the fact that we have this idea in our heads that learning language is tricky. Apparently, of the many languages that claim to be difficult to learn, English is the front runner. Some of the rules in English just don't seem to make any sense. For instance, some of our English words only exist in the plural, like jeans, scissors, and glasses. 
Right. That's so odd. Mm -hmm. I actually know a poem that is often used to exemplify how tricky English actually is. Are you going to recite it? A little spoken word, Harris? Yes. A little (laughs) spoken word for you, Walker. Actually, the poem is pretty long, so I'll only recite a little bit of it, but it's best to read it yourself to truly see how English can be difficult. The poem was written by Gerard Knowles Trenite in 1922 and is entitled The Chaos. Are you ready, Walker? I'm ready. Okay. Dearest creature in creation, study English pronunciation. I will teach you in my verse sounds like corpse, core, horse, and worse. I will keep you, Susie, busy. Make your head with heat grow dizzy. Tear in eye, your dress will tear. So shall I. Oh, hear my prayer. Pray, console your loving poet. Make my coat look new, dear, sew it. Just compare heart, beard, and herd, dies and diet, lord and word, sword and sword, retain and Britain, mind the latter, how it's written. Okay, that's only one third of the full poem, but I heard that if you can recite it with very few errors, then you are in the upper levels of those who can speak English well. Do you care to give it a go, Walker? No, I'm good, but thanks for asking. You almost fell into the category of talks too much with that, Harris. <laughs> it was a bit long, eh, Walker? <laughs> yeah. Clearly with so many English speakers in the world, though, people are willing and able to take it on. Yeah, it does take time and effort for sure. I'm super keen to learn another language. I've taken formal classes in French, Spanish, and Mandarin, but now I just use Duolingo every day to study French and Spanish. I've got the basics in a few other languages too, but most of that learning was motivated by travel. Did you know that the Scots which is my heritage, have 421 words for snow. My favorite is fiefle, which is swirled snow, like how it settles around a corner. Well, I have no love for snow, but I do like the sound of fiefle. I know, it's cute. (laughs) Part of me thinks I may be too old to learn languages. I know the last time I formally learned a language in a classroom setting was in grad school. I took ancient Greek, Latin, and German. Ancient Greek is terribly, terribly difficult. Mm. But I also found German tricky. Many words are very long. Mm -hmm. I think by the end of my course, I was fortunate to remember I'm flying to Vienna at 11. Now, I don't remember it now, but I did remember by the end of the course. You might have to do a little uh, revision of that. I'm hoping that that phrase comes in handy for you one day, Walker. It might be a little easier to learn languages when we're younger, but there are certainly many people who do learn languages later in life. It's a good retirement gig. There's more time to devote to studying a language, and you can combine your language learning with traveling abroad. That's something to look forward to for sure. You could get started now, Walker. Plan a trip and download the app. Maybe, but I think I may have an easier time learning a language if I get a bump on the head. Uh, what? on earth are you talking about, Walker? (laughs) Have you heard of those stories about people who suffer a head injury and then they wake up speaking a different language fluently? Yes, I have. In fact, I read an article about Ruben Nismo, an English-speaking Atlanta teenager who woke up from a coma speaking fluent Spanish. Can you imagine? How on earth does that happen? I know, it's crazy. Apparently, he only had some basic knowledge of Spanish before suffering a concussion during a game of soccer. In his case, though, there was a downside. Though he had newly developed Spanish fluency, he suddenly had trouble understanding English. In an interview with Time magazine, he stated, It started flowing out. I felt like it was second nature for me. I wasn't speaking my English right, and every time I tried to speak it, I would have a seizure. It was weird. It was not scary at all. I actually liked it a lot. It was really unique to me. 
So there are many stories just like this. All of these people had some introduction to the language prior to the head injury, and they all experienced challenges speaking their native language afterward. Scientists think that it might be linked with a rare condition called foreign accent syndrome. Patients who have suffered a brain injury wake up speaking in a foreign accent. In these instances, the part of the brain that controls muscles used for producing speech are injured. I've heard of this. In fact, there was just a recent report on this occurring. Abby Fender, an Arizona woman, woke up from surgery with this condition. In fact, has had three different accents, Russian, Ukrainian, and Australian. She also apparently lost the ability to sing. Oh my God, I would be devastated losing the ability to sing. That's awful. I heard about her and apparently Miss Fender had very little to no exposure to Russian before she started speaking with a Russian accent. I wonder if those people who suffer from a foreign accent condition ever develop accents of those really rare endangered languages. Like? Well, take for example, Archie. It is a Northeast Caucasian language of the Leskic group, which is spoken by about 1,200 people living in six settlements in the highlands of the Dagestan and the Russian Federation. 1,200? That's not too many people. I know, right? We probably can't find that one on Duolingo. (laughs) But then there's Kechura, though it is not very rare. In fact, 13% of Peruvians still speak this language, which is said to be the official language of the Inca Empire. Quechua most often is spoken in the southern central highland areas of Peru. I wonder what we can learn about that ancient civilization just by studying that language. Spoken like a true archaeologist, Walker. And lastly, have you heard of Esperanto? I have heard of it, but it was a long time ago and I don't remember where it is spoken. Well, there are about 100,000 people who actively speak the language, but it's not a naturally developed method of communication. In fact, Esperanto is an artificially manufactured language. It's been in use since 1887 when it was created by Polish doctor Ludwig Lejser Zamenhof, whose intent was for it to take off as a second language to be used worldwide. And what was the point of introducing a manufactured language? Zamenhof believed that an international auxiliary language would lead to world unity. He hoped that it would be quick to learn and would help create easy conversation between people who spoke different languages. This is fascinating. Did it gain any popularity? It actually did. But then Esperanto met with resistance during World War I. It was perceived as being too utopian. And then it met with even greater resistance during World War II by both Hitler and Stalin. And now? Well, almost unbelievably, it is estimated that a thousand people speak it as a first language. Wow. Yeah, I don't really know how that happens, but I guess the parents were fluent speakers. Anyway, it is thought that approximately 10 million people have studied Esperanto at one time or another. It is on Duolingo if you want to take a shot at it. Well, I like the sounds of an easy language to learn. Esperanto might just be the thing for me, Harris. There you go. That's the spirit walker. (laughs) Okay. So are you going to let me hear you speak some of these less spoken languages? Uh, No, not today. Come on. (laughs) You tried to get me to grunt laugh in the last episode. (laughs) Yeah, but did you? Uh, No. Yeah, there you go. Sorry (laughs) to disappoint, Walker. Well, it would be a public service, Harris. There are 2,400 languages that are at risk of becoming extinct, I hear. Yeah, that's a lot. And that is terrible. All that cultural and social information lost, and with it so much knowledge of the people and place associated with those languages. So why is it that different languages develop in different geographical locations? 
Well, there's several reasons involved. According to an article by Howard Manns and Kate Burridge of Monash University, who studied this phenomenon, they concluded that time, distance, and just the evolution of language creates change. For example, if two people who speak the same language separate and move to a different location, that language becomes two or more different languages. As people move, they create and add new words for novel places and experiences. Hmm. Sometimes it's not distance, but rather other human factors. Sometimes people make changes to the language they use based on their identity. It helps them to distinguish themselves from others. And of course, things change over time, even how we speak. Oh, absolutely. I remember reading old English translations in my undergrad, and you wouldn't even recognize it as the same language you and I speak today. Language is a fluid medium, something that shifts and changes along with popular culture and innovation. My current new favorite verb is to noodle. Use it in a sentence, Harris. Okay, I could say, let me just noodle on that a bit, Walker. It means... Yeah, yeah, I can figure it out. (laughs) What is your least favorite? Ugh, pivot. I would be (laughs) a happier person if I never heard that word again. Well, all of these words will come in handy in my crossword and scrabble play. Harris, I have been known to get very competitive at Scrabble. Now I'm going to tell you a little secret, Harris. I had an edge when I played Scrabble as a kid, and I don't even know if everybody in my family knows this, but I used to mark the tiles with tiny little bite marks, the blank ones. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh, that (laughs) is the dark side of Scrabble play, Walker. I love wordplay too, but I'm more of a boggle or wordle kind of gal. Well, here is a little tidbit of information to help your game the next time you play Scrabble. What do you think is the most commonly used letter in the alphabet? Hmm. Can I have a letter A? Close, but no. Vanna White would be very disappointed in you, Walker. It is the letter E, which pops up in a whopping 11% of all words in English. A is supposedly the second most common letter, so the next time you play Scrabble, make sure you hang on to those letter E's. Good advice. Of course, not all languages even use words. Mm -hmm. Did you know that there are languages which consist only of whistling? Wow, that is wild. I know. I was a bit surprised as well. There's a village in the mountains of northern Turkey called Kuskoy. The local people there communicate with this bird language, which has been used for perhaps 500 years. The population of the village is about six to 700 people. Of these, 100% understand the language, but only 80% can speak the language. There are concerns that technology will cause the language to die out, but the people of this place are working to teach the younger generation. Apparently, all the words of the Turkish language have been translated into sounds, similar to Morse code, but the bird language also accommodates some words from other languages as well. Each whistler has their own tone so that each person can be easily identified by their whistle. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely amazing to hear. I highly recommend that our listeners check out this language online. We will include a link in the show notes for sure. I'm really looking forward to a listen. But beyond listening, there is one of the most silent methods of communication, sign language. Walker, did you know that there is no universal sign language? American Sign Language uses different signs than British Sign Language or Chinese or Brazilian Sign Language, 
But apparently some countries adopt some ASL signs. Very interesting. Not surprising, but interesting. I never really thought about it, actually. No, I hadn't either. My daughter took ASL in high school, and she loved it. She taught it to her brothers, and they still have a few signs that they share from time to time, and I have no idea what they mean, so it's probably (laughs) something about me. But we are always speaking with our bodies, even if it's sometimes not intentionally. Some cultures even place heavy emphasis on their bodies when they speak. The body is a very effective tool for communicating. Body language. Yeah, exactly. The topic of body language became popular in the 1970s, but it really is a very serious field of study. Did you know that 60 to 65% of all communication is achieved via body language? Hmm. According to Kendra Cherry, in an article on body language and facial expressions, facial expressions, gestures, and eye gaze are often identified as the three major types of body language. But other aspects, such as posture and personal distance, can also be used to convey information. We are often either consciously or unconsciously interpreting people's body language in conversation. That's why with text and telephone, messages can get a little muddled. Right. You can't see their crossed arms or frequent glances at their phone or watches. Mm-hmm. Not good signs that they're enjoying the conversation. Yeah. Kendra Cherry also notes that in many cases, you should look at signals as a group rather than a focus on a single action. That's good advice. It's probably not a good idea to read too much into one or two body signals. Right. So what are your thoughts on close talkers, Walker? Well, I don't love it, but I'm more tolerant if someone's had a couple of drinks, you know. We've all done it. Yeah, for sure. I'm not much of a touchy-feely type, so I really do like my personal space. But apparently, the distance at which people feel comfortable standing next to someone when they're talking varies from culture to culture. I thought that was really interesting. This article also points out that body language can tell you when someone feels anxious, angry, excited, or any emotion. It may also suggest personality traits, but body language can also be misleading. It is subject to a person's mood, energy level, and circumstances. So our body language is changeable. Interesting. That makes me think of tells. You know, when people make body movements that indicate that they're lying. Mm -hmm. Did you know that it's estimated that 60% of people lie every 10 minutes? Every 10 minutes? That's crazy. How can that be true? Probably a lot of white lies, I imagine, like, I really like your new haircut, or I'm happy that you're sharing my cubicle with me. (laughs) Stuff like that keeps the peace, you know? Yeah. Still, that does not give me confidence in people's honesty these days. Yeah, that's a bit disturbing. What's worse is, according to an article in NBC Better By Today, we have only a 53% chance of accurately determining what is the truth from what is a lie. Apparently, both conscious biases and our decision-making skills stand in the way of more accurately determining when someone is lying to us. Harris, this is all going from bad to worse. I know. The study of lying, though, is so interesting, don't you think? Liars can manipulate their body language and how they communicate to convince us, but there are ways to expose these tactics and uncover the mistruths. Okay, so can you give us some tips and don't leave anything out? Okay, it's in the (laughs) eyes, Walker. They are the windows to the soul. Okay, what am I looking for though? Well, I think it's well known that if people avert their gaze, there is a good chance that they're lying. Or maybe they're just trying to collect their thoughts too. I often look up and away if I'm searching my mind for something. I wonder if I look guilty doing that. No, I don't think so because I do that too. I think maybe it's a little bit more nuanced. I think if you really know someone, you have what is called a baseline in their body language. Then you'll know when they start acting atypically. That's when they might be engaging in a lie. 
So if you've caught me looking off into the distance while we're talking, you would know it was a normal thing for me to do and wouldn't suspect me of being up to no good. Right. But if I hadn't met you before, well, it might make me a little suspicious. (laughs) Oh, great. That makes me feel so much better. Thanks for nothing. Yeah, sorry about that, Walker. Not all liars avoid eye contact, though. In some cases, you might have to look at pupil dilation or contraction, or even in the way someone blinks, because that can offer you some information. These are pretty tiny and hard to track clues. Yeah, they really are. Another tiny way to interpret body language is to look for micro expressions. These are expressions that you can glimpse just momentarily, revealing maybe the real emotion or motivation behind what the person's doing. Now, I also heard that people reveal themselves too if they touch their face a lot. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe that is something or maybe they're just nervous. Or they have an itchy face. Yikes. Maybe they have an itchy (laughs) face. You're right, Walker. Well, Roger Strecker Sr., who is a trained behavioral analysis interviewer and interrogator, says that... Not commonly known, when the human brain is under stress, the brain temperature rises and often is exhibited as perspiration on the forehead or upper lip area of the face. Touching the face is a pacifier and has a calming effect to an otherwise stressed brain. Foot tapping or fidgety hands should also be noted, especially when they're not happening in baseline behavior. It all comes back to the baseline. It does. Clearly, so much can be learned from our body language. It might even be said that more information can be gathered from our body language than our spoken language. Mm. Okay, so we couldn't end this episode without one last fun fact in respect to fake languages. Like Klingon? (laughs) You got it. There's supposedly 200 artificial languages in books, movies, and TV shows. Duolingo even offers courses in Klingon and High Valyrian too. But can you guess my favorite famous made-up language? Not a clue. Minionese. Ah. Those little lovable (laughs) troublemakers love potatoes, bananas, and it always involves a great deal of silliness. So do you speak Minion, Harris? Sola a Ipo, Walker. (laughs) Poopai! Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harris and Walker. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harris and Walker. We would love to hear from you.